There are two versions of the Burning Crusade narrative. The one players experienced when BC was retail, and the other one that exists in the lore once the Legion expansion comes into play. And while I hate retcons, I not only like the changes that Blizzard made to the story of Illidan and his exploits in Outland, but they also totally allow that original version of Burning Crusade to exist. If you're confused, let me explain. As part of bringing Illidan back in 2016's Legion expansion as a soon-to-be savior and anti-hero, as well as setting up the Demon Hunter class, a few details about what was going on in Outland were made. However, these changes are a matter of perspective. If we're talking about the exegesis of World of Warcraft, then it makes perfect sense that the adventurers of Azeroth know nothing about Illidan's true motives. So, the original story of Burning Crusade about a demonic Illidan collecting power and hunkering down in Outlands to fend off the demon army he betrayed and the forces of Azeroth who think he's still with the Legion makes perfect sense. However, from Illidan's perspective, this is a story of racing against the clock to find a solution to the Burning Legion and finding a way to stop the demonic wave of terror once and for all. Both things can be true. And in fact, it's this duality that is Illidan's downfall. He becomes so obsessed with finding a way to Argus and preparing his demon hunter army for a raid on the Nathrizim homeworld that he ignores the fact that the Horde and Alliance want him dead and that him still with the Burning Legion is kind of the narrative overall. Everyone thinks he's still a bad guy. After all, it's hard to ignore the evidence. Chained up Pit Lord in a basement? Check. Stealing magical energy via his Blood Elf army? Double check. Got a scaly waifu out in Zangramarsh stealing all the water like a James Bond villain? Triple check. You can see why it would be easy for the good guys to think Illidan needed taking out. However, from Illidan's perspective, these are all just distractions. He doesn't particularly care about the vain, glory-hound, and magic-addicted blood elves, and besides a long-standing relationship with Lady Vaj, I doubt Illidan cared much about the Naga. They were all just distractions meant to delay the armies of the Legion while Illidan prepared his plans. Nothing more than meat shields. So today, on Essence of Azeroth, we're going to look at those meat shields and talk about why the prince turned king of Quell Thalas and a giant snake woman have thrown down so hard for Illidan's Stormrage, as well as look at the places of their demise. The Eye at Tempest Keep, and Serpent Shrine Cavern at the Coilfang Reservoir, two of my favorite raids. And also two raids with weird attunement and travel requirements. More on that later. This is Essence of Azeroth. Support EOA in 2023 by subscribing to our Patreon, which includes the generous contributions of Alex, Daniel, Brooke, Jeff, Josh, Kelly, Bergen, Otto, and Melissa. Help make my podcast dreams a reality and subscribe today, which includes an invite to our guild on the US Asgalore server, Discord access, and me spamming you day and night with Murloc pictures. Subscribe today over at patreon.com forward slash essence of Azeroth. And now, a quick ad break. Stay tuned. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you've never played Warcraft 3, then you're really missing out on basically all of the setup for Burning Crusade. Further marking the expansion as the true sequel to the beloved RTS. So much of the world state as it is in Vanilla WoW is due to cause and effect from the story of Warcraft 3, including the corruption of the Sunwell, the near eradication of the High Elves, the rise of the Forsaken, the destruction of the Eastern Kingdoms, Dalaran's seclusion, and, of course, the Burning Legion making a full attempt at weakening Azeroth and readying it for yet another invasion attempt. I suppose it really shows that Kil'jaeden wasn't a great judge of character, as every evil flunky he keeps taking in just turns their back on him. Arthas, Illidan, Kael'thas, Vaj, more, all linked in ways that World of Warcraft never really gets to touch on. So let's connect those dots before we venture down into the depths and see what happens to Illidan's two most trusted commanders in the Outlands. We start with the sad tale of Kael'tha Sunstrider, heir apparent to the High Elves of Quel'Thalas, High Magus of the Kirin Tor, and eventual magic-addicted lackey of the Burning Legion. It's actually strange to compare the scenery-chewing, mwahaha-ing version of KT that we get in Burning Crusade with a guy who, in the lore, was one of the stalwart heroes of his people and the reason the High Elves were in the Alliance at one point. While always kind of an egotist, Kael'thas Sunstrider just wanted what was best for his people and, as he saw it, what was best was getting the High Elves out and into the world. Turned exclusionists in the days since the creation of the Sunwell, their source of magical energy at the very north of the Eastern Kingdoms, Kael'thas worried that his people were becoming bad neighbors to the rest of the world. He attempted to use his role in Dalaran as a member of the Six, the highest conclave of mages within the Kirin Tor, to bring his people to the world, and vice versa. However, it's this very thing that ends up labeling Kael'thas with a bit of a strain amongst his people, and the thing that will start him down a dark road. The fall of Silvermoon and the corruption of the Sunwell at the hands of Arthas, with the lich resurrection of Kael'thuzad, a member of the Six that Kael'thas knew quite well. Kael was actually in Dalaran during the attack on Silvermoon by the Scourge, in which 90% of his race were brutally murdered by a wave of undead, including his father and king. Kael'thas returned to a people now suffering from magic withdrawals and asking him, where were you when we needed you most? This guilt that he wasn't there for his people's greatest time of need, given that he also had his own chance to stop Kael'thuzad and didn't, 
will be Kael'thas' driving motivation for everything going forward, and something he won't be able to contend with personally until long after his death out in the Shadowlands. It's at this point that Kael'thas takes a contingent of High Elves and joins the Alliance, taking with him the Magic Forge Sorn Fellow Malorn, and declaring that his father would be the last king of Quel'Thalas, and that he would not take up the crown. And this position in the Alliance is what leads Kael to his first encounter with Illidan Stormrage, initially attempting to help Tyrande and Maeve Shadowsong in their capture of the Night Elf Betrayer. Here is where Kael'thas and the Naga Witch named Lady Vaj meet, with the Naga Witch helping the High Elf contingent from a sneak attack in Silverpine Forest, and the Naga proclaiming to help because of a common heritage with the High Elves. And here we should point out that Lady Vaj was a bit different of a Naga than the ones we know now. A former handmaiden to Queen Azjara, Vaj always had a soft spot for Illidan and was one of the first highborn to see that the queen would sacrifice everything for power, which included aligning with the demon armies of the Legion. Vaj even nursed Illidan back to health after he ripped his own eyes out of his skull upon being shown the visions of the Burning Crusade by Sargeras. And while the lore of the Old God's Taint being a driving factor on the creation of the Naga wasn't yet in place, this did place Vaj as a resistance within the Naga people, kind of as a double agent, refusing to deny their past heritage about being turned into monsters against their will, looking for vengeance against the Burning Legion. The Coilscar Naga went out in search of Illidan Stormrage to lead them in the battle against the demon armies and have the Highborn rise up once again. Now, it's also important to mention here that, thanks to WoW Chronicles Volume 3, we do know that part of Vaj's outreach is on the beckon of the Old Gods, to help stir war and weaken Azeroth as a whole. However, we'll talk about this and why it's not really the case in a little bit, because it's very complicated, and this is one of those things that happens when retcons occur and suddenly nobody knows what's going on. In many ways, this journey turns a little bit into the Wizard of Oz, with a Naga, a Blood Elf, and a broken drain eye called a Kama, all going off to see the wonderful Wizard of Fel, Illidan himself. Vaj tells Kael'thas that Illidan may be able to solve his people's newfound mana hunger, and together the two of them and their armies break out of the dungeons of Dalaran, with Kale having been placed there and labeled a traitor to the Alliance for cavorting with the Naga. And where does that portal place them? Then none other than the Outlands, freeing Illidan from the clutches of a determined Maiev Shadowsong. And of course, Illidan was in Outland because he was still attempting to outrun the Burning Crusade, who he had double-crossed once more in his attempts to find and locate the Legion homeworld. Now with three armies of the newly dubbed Blood Elves, Naga, and Broken all combined together, Illidan marched upon the Temple of Karabor, polluted by the Pit Lord Magtheridon, and turned into the ominous Black Temple. It's here that the four anti-heroes capture the evil Pit Lord, source of the orc corruption and once master of Outland, and Illidan's plan starts setting into motion. Or, should we say, plans.
you can see how the story of Burning Crusade has changed over time, both by its retcon for Legion, but also by how Blizzard used to talk about the expansion. I used the Internet Wayback Machine to go and look at the original BC website, and its synopsis reads something like, The Alliance and Horde join forces to explore the mysterious other side of the Dark Portal to find Illidan now in control of Outland, hiding from his enemies. Which is to say that it feels like every faction had a different reason for being in Outland, one way or another. Illidan was there to find a way to Argus, Illidan's lackeys were there because they thought they were consolidating power and creating a new home to stand against all adversaries. The forces of Azeroth were there thinking they were stopping the demon invasion, and the demon invasion was there trying to take back the nexus point of portals that was a post-shattering Draenor, because if you don't remember your Warcraft lore, when Gul'dan shattered Draenor, it turned the place into like a hub for all portals and realities. So that's why it's so important to the Burning Legion. It's literally their way to travel any and everywhere. And this doesn't even take into account the smaller stories that slowly get rolled out during Burning Crusade. Ranging from the Arakoa, the Netherwing Dragons, the Ogres of Bladespire, and more. Honestly, it's an overwhelming expansion, and there's a reason I think players find themselves going back to it as legacy content, because it's so interesting, and it's deep, and I still think it's the blueprint for how WoW expansions should be laid out at the end game. because getting to max level was literally only the start in Burning Crusade. And speaking of legacy content, we're going to talk about two of my favorite raids from BC, in The Eye at Tempest Keep and Serpent Shrine Cavern out at Coilfang Reservoir in Zangramarsh. Once the t Tier 2 raids of Burning Crusade, both required substantial attunement to even step foot in their doors. We've talked about attunement a bit in the past, and we'll certainly be talking about it on the next episode, but the idea was that attunement was somewhat of a badge of honor and proof that you've done the content leading up to a raid especially seeing as gear score wasn't a thing yet, and it was otherwise hard to see if a player was properly ready or knew what they were doing. But before that, let's get attuned to the lore, am I right? Yeah, yay, yay. <laughs> After all, we have to answer a big question. Why was Kael'thas out in Netherstorm and Lady Vaj out in Zangramarsh? The real answer was, distraction. Part of Illidan's plan from the outside was a consolidation of power in Outland, taking over as its new ruler from Magtheridon. To do that, Illidan wanted to take the most valuable resources in this new land and put a tight grasp on it. This meant water and arcane energy. The largest source of water in Outlands is the Zangramarsh, and the massive amount of magic power generated by the fracturing of Draenor meant a power struggle on all sides, of which Illidan was more than ready to take over. But in reality, Illidan did not care about either. He needed ways to keep his newfound Blood Elf and Naga troops focused, because what he was doing, building the spells that would allow him to travel to Burning Crusade homeworlds, took time and energy and seclusion, so he needed something for them to all come together on. 
and part of that came with keeping them busy. In the case of Kalthus, the would-be king was promised a solution to his people's newfound lethargy from being cut off of arcane power at the Sunwell, turning to Illidan for a solution. In actuality, Illidan had a solution to their hunger all along, in the form of a vial of eternity, water left over from the original Well of Eternity. However, Illidan had grander plans for it in the form of the Reliquary of Souls, the holding grounds for the souls of Akandun that Illidan would try and use to open the portal to Argus for his final assault against the Legion. And this is why there's also the Reliquary of Souls boss in Black Temple, which we will talk about by the end of this series. But Illidan still had need of the Sun King's powerful mage army, so stringing them along, he sends the Blood Elves out into Netherstorm to harness the massive energy leaking out all over. And instead, Kael'thas found something better. The massive spaceship fortress of Tempest Keep, left behind by the Draenei and created by the Naru, capable of teleporting through dimensions. But once the Naru left their ship and went to Shatrath, Kael'thas quickly moved in, reverse engineering the technology and creating the mana forges to do some kind of space fracking, turning the arcane energy into mana cubes that would be used to control his people's hunger. In fact, during this period in Burning Crusade, if you went to Silvermoon City, you could see piles of mana cubes all along the capital, along with citizens talking positively about Kael'thas and all he was doing for the Blood Elf people. However, the full powers of the keep were not to be in the hands of the Sunstrider, as the Draenei prophet Velen and his people break into Tempest Keep and steal one of the satellite engines, known as the Exodar, and rocket off through a portal to safety, crash landing on Azeroth and setting up the Draenei race starting area. Tempest Keep is actually one of my favorite examples of raid hubs used in World of Warcraft, as it also houses multiple dungeons. Included in a ring around the entrance to the Eye at Tempest Keep includes the Botanica, the Mechanar, and the Architraz, all places that players would visit during the attunement quest for Tempest Keep as part of the chain involving clearing these heroic versions of the dungeons during the Trial of the Naru questline. While now removed from the game, completing this chain back in the day would not only score players the key to Tempest Keep, but the Champion of the Naru title, one of the first titles in the game. However, Kalthus has been keeping his own secrets during this time. In the Illidan novel, we never see this play out because Illidan is having his doubts about KT's allegiances to the Illidari cause. This is because, in turn, Kalthus doesn't believe that Illidan has any plans to help his people, and instead has turned to the Burning Legion, promising an infinite amount of fell energy for him and all of his people, as long as the Sun King helps give the Demon Horde a foothold on Azeroth. You can guess what happened. Kael'thas, so desperate to save this one metaphorical tree, instead opts to burn down the entire forest around it. And so players venture out to Eastern Netherstorm to stop Kael'thas from ripping Outlands apart in Ephraim. Welcome to the Eye. I hope you have your flying mount. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My first experience with the I-Raid was both excitement and deflation. I had recently gotten my full tier set from the Karazhan raids and was ready to try something new. I had just joined a new raiding guild that was active and set to go into Tempest Keep for the first time. Just one problem. I didn't have flying. Newer players may not realize this, but there was a time when getting the gold for flying was a true luxury. Focused on raiding and leveling, I just didn't ever have the time for gold farming, especially as a tailor. So come to my confusion when the entire raid gathers out another storm, we're told to go in, and I'm stuck asking where the door was at. You had to fly up to the raid to get inside. Gentle viewers, I did not, in fact, raid that evening. It wouldn't be until next week when we had a warlock in the party that I was finally able to go. At that point, it felt kind of anticlimactic. Part of the third tier of raiding in Burning Crusade, the Eye at Tempest Keep is a 25-man dungeon that shares a tier loot table with Serpent Shrine Cavern and is just below the Battle of Mount Hyjal, featuring four bosses, including a five-part encounter against Kael'tha Sunstrider. The eye is themed around Exodar and Draenei architecture, and the inside is actually pretty sparse, with long connected hallways leading to hubs where each of the bosses sit. In terms of challenge, the eye was one of the easier full raids in BC, with the only real challenge coming in the form of Kael'thas himself. However, Tempest Keep is still a hotbed for legacy loot hunters, even to this day, mainly because of our first boss, the great Phoenix God. Alar. KT's personal mount and the guardian of the front door to the eye. Bought in a giant circular room with two levels, the Alar boss is flying around the middle until pulled. And in the first phase, it's actually impossible to pull aggro on the big bird at range. But melee combatants could definitely pull aggro from the boss, meaning that it was important to watch threat early on, especially if you were in that melee party. During this phase, he would fly to different platforms and spawn baby phoenixes that would head straight for healers, meaning that they absolutely had to be dealt with. Phase 2 happens when Alara reaches 0 HP, so keep this in mind if you are solo grinding out the eye in retail because you might think that it despawned and that you have to run back out. Don't worry, he'll spawn back, dealing explosive damage and heading straight for the person with the most aggro, as his aggro table doesn't wipe in between phases. In addition to melting the tank's armor, Alar will also dive bomb and explode on random targets. It was also possible for the boss to glitch during this phase if players were on the stairs and not on the ground level, resetting the fight. Woof. So keep that in mind too if you once again you are going back and grinding this out. This fight is notable for two reasons. The first and big reason is that 
the ashes of Alar Mount drop from this boss. Added at the behest of a Make-A-Wish child that wanted their own unique mount in the game, the Ashes of Alar continues to be one of the rarest mounts in World of Warcraft, with a drop rate rumored to be less than 1%. Also, until the release of Wrath of the Lich King, this was the only mount in the game capable of 310% mount speed outside of PvP. The second interesting bit is that killing Alar while dressed as one of Akama's Ashtung Broken is actually part of the quest chain to get attuned to Black Temple. In story, you are now helping Akama and an imprisoned Maiev Shadow Song to work towards breaking into the Black Temple, and Illidan, at the peak of his paranoia, is now second-guessing the loyalty of Akama's people. Knowing that Kalthus has betrayed his cause to join the Burning Legion, Illidan demands that the Ash Tongue break into Tempest Keep and slaughter KT's precious pet as a show of force. Not able to trust his own corrupted people due to his own soul literally being held hostage, Akama tasks your raid with dressing up and killing Alar. Fun fact, this attunement quest also gives an item that, when completed, allows you to directly teleport to Black Temple, similar to Atesh, Staff of the Guardian, for Karazhan. However, if you were doing this raid back in the day, you most likely skipped Alar and instead went for the big metal loot pinata on the left, the Void Reaver, or as old school players know him as, the Loot Reaver. One of the biggest pushover fights in the entire expansion, this massive Fell Reaver, given to Kael'thas by the Burning Legion, is literally just a DPS race with additional mobs around the room. Given that he dropped Tier 5 Shoulder Tokens, it was often that pug groups would start by only doing Void Reaver, while continuing to do Gruul, Magtheridon, and the rest of the early tier loop of the raids in BC. The last boss before the raid finale is on the right side of the dungeon with high astromancer Solarian surrounded by a herd of blood elf followers. One of KT's highest ranking mages, Solarian actually holds a secret in that the final phase of her fight, she morphs into a massive void walker. Lore-wise, this is a bit confounding as typically void magic is associated with holy power, but it's also entirely possible that void magic was at work. There's a quote from Solarian's Hearthstone card that says, Loyal to Kael'thas Sunstrider, this blood elf mage sought arcane power in the void. Did she find it? Or did it find her? Interesting. Finally, we approach the grand ballroom and Kael'thas Sunstrider, rejected king of the blood elves and surrounded by his closest advisors, stands tall, ready to take on your party. I hope you're ready for a couple of PvP count encounters, because, among other things, you're going to be doing that and fighting a ton of groups. Multiple times. <laughs> the KT fight is a five-phase boss battle that really stretched groups out in regards to resource management and mechanics changes. I remember pugging this fight as a Shadow Priest and often running low on mana simply because of how long the fight took. And I do remember that we would bring in multiple Shadow Priests because back then, Shadow Priests were basically big old mana batteries for the rest of the party. Raiders from this period consider the KT fight second only to Illidan in regards to challenge, which I think is really all that's needed to know about just how hard this boss was. The first phase sees your group challenging each of KT's advisors at half health, one at a time. Each one is immune to stuns, snares, and taunts, and each unique advisor has their own kind of bullshit gimmick, ranging from a long-term silence to a minute-long exploding stun. Also, bonus attacks. Who doesn't love bonus attacks? 
After each advisor is downed, Kalthus brings out the big guns. Or more specifically, the big weapons. Seven weapons spring to life around the boss and must be AoE'd down. However, the unique thing here is that the weapons are all legendary rarity and can be picked up by the raid, providing a nice bonus and effects for the next three phases. And you will need them, as now all of KT's advisors are back to life at their full health and all attacking at once. You'll have to hope your group was quick during phase two, as phase three starts exactly two minutes after that start of the phase two, meaning you could be dealing a with a ton of problems if all of the weapons aren't killed fast enough. The new advisor phase is broken down into groups, with the main tank picking up the tank advisor, the off tank grabbing aggro on Talonicus, and in a rare moment of weird tanks, a warlock with fire resist gear gets aggro on the mage, Capernaum. The raid has three minutes to finish this phase, as phase four starts after that, and with it comes Kael'thas entering the fight directly. In addition to the standard fire mage spells that the entire raid will need to avoid, such as Pyroblast and Flame Strike, KT can also mind control allies. He'll also summon Phoenix Eggs that will indefinitely spawn bird adds until all the eggs are taken down, which becomes the raid's focus before KT hits 50% health and the final phase starts. During this phase, he gains a number of gravity spells, including the ability to pick up and fling random party members into the air and to the very back of the room, temporarily unable to act. These members had to be healed while they were being flung, as their buttons could also be disabled during the animation. While not possessing an rage timer, KT did kind of have to be beaten in 15 minutes from the point of the weapon phase ending, as the legendary weapons would de-summon and leave your inventory after that time. In addition to dropping tier 5 chest pieces, killing KT was also part of the attunement quest for the Battle of Mount Hyjal Raid, with players needing to grab one of two Vials of Eternity. Curious. I wonder where he got that. Hmm. The world-first kill of KT took place on, in May of 2007 by the EU Horde Guild Nihilum, who would go on later to merge with the other top BC guild, Curse, to form the Super Guild Insidia, who would go on to dominate most of Ratchet the Lith King in regards to Race to World First encounters. With one lieutenant down, players would now need to venture into the watery depths of Zangramarsh and contend with one of the most unique raids in WoW to this point. I hope you brought your fishing pole, because it's time to talk about Serpent Shrine Cavern. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Attunement to Serpent Shrine Cavern was far easier than that of the eye. Assuming easy in your mind is beating Gruul, as well as the hidden dragon boss Nightbane in Karazhan. The second of those bosses could prove to be difficult, as not every Kara run bothered to stop and do Nightbane, considering that even being able to summon the dragon required its own attunement. Towards the end of Burning Crusade, getting any of this done became harder and harder. Which is a shame, because Serpent Shrine Cavern is cool as hell. Located through a massive pipe in the middle of the Zangra Marsh, Serpent Shrine is the raid portion of the Coilfang Reservoir Hub that also included heroic dungeons. Lady Vaj holds court here in the cavern, using her Naga forces to rob Outland of its water supply and serve the, in the will of Illidan and the Illidari without question. And we do hope that you like water, because there's a lot of it here, but none that you'll want to swim in until you clear a specific boss. Not only do elite fish mobs patrol the water, but the water is also scalding and will do fire damage per second while swimming. While there isn't a required boss order in this zone, you do need to clear all the bosses in order to open the bridge to Lady Vaj's throne room. However, just about every run began with a stop at Hydros the Unstable, a Hydraxian waterlord that appears to have been captured and placed in the cavern against its will, both as a way to cleanse the waters, but also as a deterrent against interlopers. The most interesting note about this in Elemental is he has a very old-school quirk in that he's immune to frost damage. It was rare to see an enemy at this point in the game's lifespan to be immune to anything, and it's just another way that frost mages once again get dunked on. So I'm sorry to all of you out there, especially because you're currently low tier right now in regards to Dragonflight raid damage. It's just never easy being a frost mage. After drowning the Duke of Currents, it's time to break out that fishing pole I mentioned earlier, because the next boss cannot be pulled unless someone fishes it up out of the center of the zone. The Lurker below is already a unique fight simply for that mechanic, but the big fish is also key to making the water across Serpent Shrine safe to enter. Now, back in the day, this required someone with a 300 or higher fishing skill to bring the boss out of the water. And if you're guessing that sometimes meant 25 people were standing around asking who could fish up Lurker, only to learn that nobody had fishing that high up, you would be right. From here, the group had a choice in regards to boss order, as the next three can somewhat be tackled any way you wish. The water giant Moragrim Tidewalker, Naga General Fathom Lord Carathus, and the wayward demon hunter Leothrus the Blind are off to the side, with two of the bosses having unique entrances that allowed the raid to pick and choose which ones they tackled. However, all three had to be cleared in order to lower the bridge to access Lady Vaj. Two of these bosses aren't interesting. Sometimes that just happens. Moragrim is just a big ol' elemental giant that places the raid in bubbles, and Karathus is a Naga advisor fight, with one interesting thing that he's able to mana burn entire members of your party, so sometimes that could become an issue. However, for the sake of lore, Leothrus is fascinating because he exists both in the Before Legion and the After Legion canon. In Burning Crusade's story, Kael'thas sent five Blood Elves to Illidan for the purposes of training and learning the art of the Demon Hunter. This new specialty platoon was to be part of KT's plan to invade Shatrath City and take the Naru for himself as a new source of power. 
However, of the five blood elves that he sent to be trained, four died instantly, leaving only Leothrus. However, like many demon hunters did during the process of going through exactly what happened to Illidan in order to gain their powers, he succumbed to the demon inside and lost all control. Unable to be stopped, he escaped from the Black Temple and madly fled into the Zangramarsh where Lady Vaja's mages were able to capture and banish the demon hunter and keep him under control for a rainy day. The proposed raid on Shatrath City by Kael'thas ends up being a double loss, as not only did he not have his special demon hunter platoon, but the mages he did send ended up defecting to Shatrath upon meeting the Naru and formed the Scryers. Whoops. As for Leothrus, after his death in Serpent Shrine Cavern, he sent back to the Twisting Nether, because remember, demons can't really die unless killed within the Nether, and that goes double for demon hunters. And as such, Sargeras was delivered a present in the form of a demon hunter who he warped and corrupted to his side, later deploying Leothrus as a general during Legion and the Demon Hunter class campaign. During this campaign, you also run into Vandal, the semi-main character of the Illidan novel, who is the reader's perspective on the demon hunter training. Once you, all of that has been done and you've defeated all of the bosses you can, the bridge is lowered and you take on the final encounter of Serpent Shrine and Illidan's most loyal lieutenant. Lady Vaj was a difficult encounter back in the day due to a number of adds, poison damage, and frustrating mechanics for the time. Halfway through the battle, she suddenly becomes invulnerable and begins to stack a growing flat percentage of attack damage every minute until the raid can remove her shield. To do so, you must use four tide orbs that spawn throughout the fight, throwing them from raid member to raid member and dropping them on the Naga Witch. However, these orbs only drop from special water elementals, meaning that it was a ranged DPS's job to not only spot these special water elemental mobs, but get control of the orbs. Many a pickup group would wipe on Vaj due to an inability to coordinate the orbs, kill the right mobs, and get Vaj back to being damageable before she grew too large. This was also one of the first instances I remember of setting up a macro in order to handle a boss uh, mechanic, because sometimes it could be hard to pull up your bag and select the orb from your inventory and then click on it and then click on another player. So you had to set up a macro to just throw it to the nearest person, um, which was a struggle in and of itself. However, assuming you did everything right, you'd slay the beast, collect your second vial of eternity if you're doing the battle for Hyjal attunement and move on with your life. And in many ways, Lady Vaj would move on too. She'd reappear in the Shadowlands not only as a hero, but as a high-ranking member of the Maldraxxus army, seemingly living her best life now? What's funny is that she appears as a Naga skeleton, but if you ask her, she'll mention that she was actually allowed to choose her form and opted to not look like a high elf again, because she actually enjoyed looking fearsome as, like, an undead Naga, and, you know, we love and respect that choice. And in kind of a nice way, she has a... A, a nice and wonderful epilogue seen during a questline in which she's fishing out in Maldraxxus, way out of the way in a peaceful spot. Her own personal afterlife, and there under the water, if you look hard enough, is the lurker below. Even for formerly evil fish people, there's some kind of semblance of finding life after death. Next time on Essence of Azeroth, 
While the Burning Crusade was hot on the trail of Illidan Stormrage, it hadn't forgotten about its mission of finding a way onto Azeroth. And as it turns out, they had a man on the inside that had turned his giant crazy mansion into a nexus hub for all realities. In two weeks, we'll venture into my favorite raid in World of Warcraft and look at Castle Karazhan, the final guardian of Tirasfall, and why all manner of spooky things seem to go down in this raid that underwent massive changes from its initial premise as a raid in vanilla World of Warcraft. Until next time, take care. I'm <laughs> sorry.